0: This year's theme, we haven't always had a theme every year at Grace Bible Church. It just sort of worked out last year, but we're going to do one again this year. And this year's theme is the church, the pillar, and the foundation of the truth. And we're going to look at that um, all year long. We're going to do this primarily to communicate the fact that the church is essential. I think that word essential has been a, a catchphrase this past year. And that has been the great debate. Is the church essential? We would say it is. What began as government guidelines to help society in the pandemic. Has become clearly a fight against the church of Jesus Christ. In Canada, for example. Churches are being oppressed at higher and higher levels. This week, Canadian police... Press charges against six elders of Trinity Bible Chapel in Ontario. They're facing trial and a fine of $10,000 because they had a meeting with more than 10 people. The church published a response. Quote, Our Savior shed his blood to purchase the church, and therefore deeming the church unessential is tantamount to deeming the blood of Christ unessential, which is a public act of blasphemy. They expressed a sincere hope and desire for the salvation of all the government officials, but they warned, quote, One day our elected officials, bureaucrats, and police will stand before the court of God's justice for these acts. And they're absolutely right. Several of even my own fellow graduates of the Master Seminary in Canada are making similar stands, and they're taking great heat, great difficulty for it, And the argument that they're making, and it is a sound argument, is that regardless of what's happening in the world, the elders of a local church are called to shepherd the flock of God and that elders have no right and no authority to deny God's people the ability to gather together. In fact, one pastor said that's being an anti-elder if you're going to deny God's people the right to gather. And the effect of this has been tremendous. In the faithful churches, the most faithful churches that we are um, that we are thankful for, the most faithful churches, their ecclesiology is strengthening. They are flexing the muscles of the fact that they are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the chosen of Christ, the high priesthood of God, and so. We are the church. We are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That is our theme this year. We're going to stand hard on that. We're not going into a defensive posture. We're going to go into, onto the offense. And we're going to proclaim the truth. And we got a head start in thinking in this direction last week. And I'd like to continue our thoughts today. And what I'd like to do is actually direct our thinking to the Bible. I want to talk about the Bible for just a moment. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is the eternal word of God. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is unfathomable in its spiritual riches. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is the sole source of our knowledge of Jesus Christ our Savior. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is living and active according to Hebrews 4. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is inerrant. It contains no error, no mistake of any kind. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is inspired, it is literally breathed out by God. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is infallible, that it cannot fail, nor can it ever lead anyone astray. By virtue of the fact that the Bible is invincible, meaning it's unable to be defeated by any human idea. By virtue of all of these qualities, the Bible then must be absolutely authoritative. There is no other authority. And this, of course, has great, tremendous, eternal implications for how we think about the preached Word of God. And so along those lines this morning, I want to do what's really kind of the second half of our short message that I'm calling A Listener's Guide to Preaching. I mentioned last week that I try to squeeze in one or two sermons on preaching every year, and this is my time to do that. Because it's my longing for you to be well-informed. I want you to be educated. I want you to understand as listeners so that you know what you're listening for. In fact, because of its own depth and complexity, as we hear preaching, uh, the, the Bible uses metaphors about itself. The Bible uses word pictures about itself to help us to somewhat wrap our minds around the the absolute and infinite and divine nature and authority of the scriptures these metaphors for the bible these word pictures are all over the place in scripture but just to get our thinking kind of aimed in the right direction i want to have you turn to psalm 119 we'll get our minds engaged in psalm 119 then we'll return to acts chapter 2 where we were last week you know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. It's sometimes also called the longest chapter in the Bible. But technically, psalms are not chapters. Chapter divisions in Scripture were added by human editors. They're useful, but they're not inspired. But the psalms are individual songs, and they are inspired. And so we would shy away from calling it Psalm chapter 119. It's just Psalm 119. But just in this psalm alone, I want to show you 10 metaphors for the Bible that helps us understand the divine nature and authority of Scripture. Psalm 119, the Bible is, first of all, a supply of righteousness. It's a supply of righteousness. These are just metaphors for the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Old King James says, I've treasured your word in my heart. I've stored it up. The storing up of the word of God in your heart, what does it do? It softens the soil to bear fruit, to bear the fruit of righteousness. And the implication here is obvious. The more of the word of God you have stored up, the better off you'll be. It's a supply of righteousness. The Bible is also a council of elders. It's a council of elders. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Literally in Hebrew, they are my men. They're the men who surround me, who give me counsel. They're the leaders which guide me and give me guidance along the way. And the implication, of course, is that you're going to listen to this council of elders. The Bible is, third, a path of delight. It's a path of delight. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. This ties into the common biblical theme of walking with the Lord, walking with God. How do you do that? By using his word as your path. This is very similar to verse 45. And I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. Now, what is a wide place? When you were traveling in the ancient Near East, you didn't ever want to walk in a narrow place because a narrow place is where bad guys could hide and ambush you. So you walk in a wide place where you have a big scope, you have a big view of everything, and you know that you're safe. And so the wide place of Scripture is that you have a, you have a clear view. You're not going to be spiritually deceived. There's a fourth metaphor. The Bible is a taste of sweetness. It's a taste of sweetness. Look at verse 103. 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And of course, if you know the Psalms, you're already thinking about Psalm 19, verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, speaking of the word of God. The New Testament uses metaphors of food for the word of God. Peter calls the word pure spiritual milk. Jesus told Peter that his job as a shepherd was to do what? Feed the sheep. And so there's a taste of sweetness. It is food. There's a fifth metaphor. The Bible is a light of certainty. It's a light of certainty. Verse 105, probably the best known metaphor in Psalm 119. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The path here obviously speaks of your life. It speaks of the daily choices you make, the many forks in the road that you have every single day. And the word of God lights these forks in the road, which shows which ones lead to blessing and which ones lead to misery. That's what the word of God does. It's a light of certainty. It's the sixth metaphor. The Bible is an inheritance of joy. It's an inheritance of joy. Verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. What what is heritage? Well, it's the idea of something you inherit, something that becomes yours. And as a child of the living God, in a very real sense, the word of God belongs to you now. It's your right. It's your privilege to enjoy the goodness of God's word. You have full, free, open access. Because of the spirit of God at work in you, you can freely receive this inheritance of joy The Apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It's a free inheritance of joy. The Bible is a drink of water. It's a drink of water. Verse 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. The believer is thirsty for the word, panting as it were. Now, of course, we immediately think of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I like this metaphor. There's an eighth one. The Bible is the face of God. The Bible is the face of God. Verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. The Hebrew poetic synonymous parallelism here. What does that tell us? It tells us that learning the word of God is likened to having the face of God shine upon you. The word of God is the smile of God. The countenance of God himself. Here's a ninth word picture, and I took a little liberty with this one to make us understand it better. The Bible is the alarm clock of the soul. It is the alarm clock of the soul. I took some liberties because there were no alarm clocks when Psalm 119 was written. There were roosters. I guess we could have called it the rooster of the soul, but that wouldn't have made sense to you. The alarm clock of the soul, verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Now, I want to be very clear here. It's not so much that the psalmist can't get to sleep, and so there's this last-ditch effort. He finally goes to the Word of God. Look backwards at verse 62, rather. Very similar. Verse 62, At midnight I rise. This is a purpose clause. To praise you, I rise in order to praise you because of your righteous rules. It's not just, well, I can't get to sleep, I may as well get up and read the Bible. It's that his desire for his word gets him up in the middle of the night. Let's do one more. The Bible is the praise of the soul. The Bible is the praise of the soul. Verse 171 My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. The first priority of worship is to know God. We know God in his word. And here we see that the response of knowing God is to sing his word back to him. Do you have lips that praise? And somebody might say, I don't know how to praise God. Read and sing his word back to him. That's what he desires. So with all of these metaphors, is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the what? The word. And that's it. That's all we preach. Now, with that foundation, I think we can turn to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, what we started last week was sort of deconstructing Peter's sermon to the thousands of Jews gathered at Pentecost The Holy Spirit has come upon all the apostles. They're proclaiming the gospel to the Jewish visitors from all over the world. And taking the lead is Peter preaching the very first Christian sermon. We read the whole thing last week. I won't do that this time. So far in our listener's guide to preaching, we've seen that what we call Peter-like preaching. Peter-like preaching includes some key elements and we are de- deconstructing this sermon to understand how to listen to preaching what you're listening for so far just to do a little review from last time peter like preaching includes first of all a communication that is heightened a communication that is heightened peter has he says at the beginning of his sermon lifted up his voice in verse 14 it means to cry out to stir up to rise up against falsehood and so there's a there's a element of heightened communication secondly we saw that peter-like preaching includes a command that is direct it's a command that is direct we saw that three times in his sermon he commands that his audience listen to him he commands it and he demands it peter-like preaching third we said includes a confrontation that is personal A confrontation that's personal. We saw that Peter's continually pointing the verbal you, pointing the finger at his audience, forcing them to look inward at their own souls. This is not a moment for us to contemplate. According to Peter, it's a moment for you to contemplate. We saw, fourthly, that Peter-like preaching includes a content that is authoritative. A content that is authoritative. The basis for his authority to speak is the word of God. And Peter preaches from Joel chapter 2 in verses 17 through 21. He preaches from Psalm 16 in verses 25 through 28. And he preaches from Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35. That is his authority. He is not authoritative in any other realm, just with the word of God. We saw a fifth that Peter like preaching includes a Christ who is proclaimed. A Christ who is proclaimed. That's our theme verse in our church. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. The clear center of this message is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixth, we saw that Peter, like preaching, includes a control that is thorough. A control that is thorough in no uncertain terms. Peter declares the sovereign control of God, not only over the death of Christ. We saw in verse So see over all who would be saved from their sins verse 39 for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself salvation is for everyone whom the Lord calls sovereignty a control that is thorough we also saw that Peter like preaching includes a, a champion who is resurrected a champion who is resurrected. We saw last time that 30% of Peter's message is devoted to the resurrection of Christ. In fact, some liberal scholars have even said that the book of Acts contains so many sermons about the resurrection that the apostles seem to have ignored the death of Christ. That's not true, but it tells you how much of the resurrection is, is preached. Without the resurrection, we saw that Christianity is pointless And with the resurrection, Christianity now becomes the sole and only means by which one may have eternal life in Christ. Christ paved the way to that eternity without death. And finally, we saw that Peter-like preaching includes a conqueror who is ascended. A conqueror who is ascended. Peter highlighted the ascension of Christ, the fact in verse 33 that the Lord Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. We highlighted Christ's ministry of intercession, which is a really important element of preaching because this provides our security and salvation. Uh, How would you like it if we closed every message with, well, hope you make it. We don't want that. No, we have an advocate with the Father who is ever interceding for us. We can't have too many reminders of God's covenant faithfulness. So that's where we started. I want to finish this up today. Let's do our other set. Of eight elements of Peter like preaching. I'm just going to continue numbering these. Ninth, Peter like preaching includes a church that is empowered. It includes a church that is empowered. We're now in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, it's not that Jesus received the Holy Spirit. It's that he received from the Father the go-ahead to send the Holy Spirit. John 14, beginning of verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And we've said this before, this is the premier feature of the new covenant believer in Christ. The new covenant, the, the premier feature is the fact that you are indwelt By the Spirit of God. It's the first time in all of history. only time in all of history that God's people are indwelt. And this is at the moment of conversion to Christ. Not only does the Holy Spirit instantly indwell every believer in Christ. He regenerated you to enable you to be able to have faith that's needed for salvation. He baptized every single believer into the church universal. Into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 Tells us very clearly, every believer has been baptized in the Spirit. And just so we're clear, the baptism of the Spirit is not an experience that you have. The New Testament doesn't say that. It is to be placed into a new position. You're in the new position as a child of God and you're members now in the church of Jesus Christ. And so not only does he indwell and he regenerated, he, he baptized, he fills us. Inasmuch as we treasure the riches of God's word, he uses the the word of God to shape our thoughts, shape our actions. And of course, Ephesians 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit sealed us. He sealed us in our saved state so that no one or nothing may snatch away our future heavenly inheritance. But this empowerment by the Spirit of God isn't merely for our own benefit. It comes with a mission. It comes with a purpose. The New Testament uses numerous descriptors to explain the uniqueness and the holiness of Christ's church. We're called a family, a household, a holy temple, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. But there's one descriptor, which I don't think is quite as commonly talked about, and it tells us about our purpose, tells us about our mission as God's empowered people. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9 says of the church, you are God's field. You are God's field. Now, the the Greek for field is very complicated. It means cultivated farmland. It's a field. It's not something blank. It's something that has things growing in it. You are the field in which the seeds of the gospel are planted to bear fruit, to spread to the world. You're the field in which a harvest is expected. You're the field that God has empowered to make certain that the message of Christ continues to spread. How are we doing so far? The field has been incredibly successful for 2,000 years. How do we know this? Because you're here. You're here. You came to faith in Christ 2,000 years after that metaphor was given by the Apostle Paul. And so the preached word of God in your lives, this is the, the seeds of the knowledge of God, the seeds of his word, the seeds of the glory of God, the seeds of the doctrines of grace, all that we hold dear In salvation, the seeds of the great men and women of the Bible, the seeds of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, all that we hold precious to us from the truth of Scripture, preaching is plowing these seeds into your hearts continually, into your minds continually, pulling up the weeds also and mixing in instead the rich nutrients of the Word of God. Why? So that you might bear fruit. Jesus said, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's why we must preach to the church about the church, continually. That's why ecclesiology has to have a major place at the table. Show me an unhealthy church, and I'll show you a church that doesn't preach ecclesiology, the study of the church. And so Peter-like preaching includes a church that is empowered. There's a tenth element of Peter-like preaching. Peter-like preaching includes a crown that is coming. A crown that is coming. Look with me at verse 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Peter is quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. This is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament, by the way. And just this one power-packed verse, look what we get. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We get the doctrine of the Trinity. First of all, David is saying the Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Son of God. There's the doctrine of the Trinity. We get the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. This is written a thousand years before the birth of Christ, and yet we get the ascension we get the current exaltation of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is exaltation. We get the doctrine of the justice of God, that God will repay all who have sinned against him. And of course here, and this is really Peter's point, we get the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, to be the crowned king of all the kings. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 9. Speaks of the same event. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's a coronation formula. Today I've made you king. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 24, one of my favorites, speaks metaphorically to the city gates of the world telling them, get ready. Get ready because the king is coming. And it tells the gates to look up. Psalm 24, 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And may most telling of the fact that the crown is coming. The vision of Christ preparing to return to earth in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse And one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Here it is. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Diadems, this is a word that means a royal headband or a royal crown. Now, how is it that the Lord Jesus Christ is wearing many, many crowns? Well, there's probably some symbolism here, but... uh, It may be easier to understand. He's not wearing a lot of crowns. He's wearing all of the crowns. He's wearing every one of them. What is he doing? This is before the battle for the earth. And Jesus Christ is, as it were, trying on all the crowns of earth for size. Because he's going to wear all of them. The fact that there's a heavenly crown that's coming provides, I think, one of our greatest sources of comfort and joy. It is the imperative of the preacher to continually point you to the future glory of a world ruled by Jesus Christ. I honestly, I don't know how to preach without thinking about the coming of Christ. It's so ingrained in how we think. In fact, some of the greatest text in Handel's Messiah comes from Isaiah 40 comfort comfort my people says your god speak tenderly to jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the lord's hand double for all her sins and what's the source of this comfort you're familiar with this isaiah 40 verse three a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god Now, if you know your New Testament, you know that the first fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse three was John the Baptist preparing the way for the first coming of Jesus Christ. But Isaiah 40 continues and it moves very quickly now on to the second coming. The very next verse, every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be level and the rough places a plain. Now stop right there for a minute. You compare this to Zechariah 14, some other Old Testament passages. This is not some sort of metaphor of the low places going higher and the high places going down. This is the topography of the earth changing when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. In verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You can probably hear Handel's Messiah going through your mind right now. According to Isaiah 40, the coming of Christ to reign on earth should be to comfort, comfort my people. Peter-like preaching includes a crown that is coming. The 11th element of Peter-like preaching includes a charge that is inescapable. A charge that is inescapable. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's a clear imperative here, a charge, an order. You need to know this. And basically, Peter says, you are now responsible for this information. And whatever happens to you is now on you because you have this information. This singular statement basically is a synthesis of Peter's whole sermon and it ends with this very strong appeal to the gospel. This is very different than the flavor of asking nicely. This is not the soft tone of Would you come to Christ? Which is great, which is fine. This is not the soft tone of making tender appeals to Christ. This is not the soft tone of perhaps some sound reasoning for the gospel. In this particular context, Peter simply asserts a bold command. You need to know Christ. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, on one occasion he made no apology for a command to believe the gospel And near the end of his sermon, as he was proclaiming the gospel, he said, Do you spurn it? Do you still refuse it? Then I must change my tone a minute. I will not only tell you the message and invite you as I do with all earnestness and sincere affection. I will go further. Sinner, in God's name, I command you to repent and believe. It's no wonder that Spurgeon saw well over 11,000 people come to faith in Christ during the course of his ministry. And why should you respond to the call of the gospel? Why should you respond to this command? Verse 36, Jesus is the one you crucified. Now, I would say we need to not just say, well, they crucified him. I didn't. I wouldn't say that. If it hadn't been for your sin, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross in the first place. If it hadn't been for your depravity, he wouldn't have had to suffer and die. If it hadn't been for your rebellion, he wouldn't have had to bear this infinite burden. So how insulting, how treacherous would it be on your part that Jesus would so graciously suffer for you and have you reject his offer to pay the penalty for your sin? Peter-like preaching includes a charge that is inescapable. You must know Christ. There's a twelfth element of Peter-like preaching. It includes a Christology that is robust. A Christology, a study of Christ that is robust. The Jesus of shallow, man-centered church traditions, frankly, bears very little resemblance to the Jesus of the Bible. The real Lord Jesus Christ. This past Sunday, I decided to torture myself and I went and listened, didn't go, I just listened online to um, one of our local man-centered mega church pastors in our own city. He was not preaching. He talked. What he was doing could not be called preaching in any sense of the word. He was talking on John chapter 2, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And you're familiar with the story. Here are the three points of his sermon. Point number one, relationships sometimes change. He was speaking of the relationship between Jesus and Mary. And his lesson was, is there anybody you're trying to hang on to in this life that you need to let go of? Because apparently that's why Jesus turned water into wine so that you could ask that question. He made a third point. then I'll give you the second one because it's it's too good to, to use up. The third point, Jesus met the man, meaning the man in charge of the wedding. Jesus met the man at his felt need and didn't meet his real needs. Okay, so that's the point. The man didn't need water turned to wine and Jesus met the felt need because that was more important at that moment. The second point he made literally almost fell out of my chair when I heard this. Don't use a text in a way it wasn't intended to be used. Don't use the text to justify... According to this pastor, the lesson was, don't use John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, Jesus turning water into wine, as an excuse for you to keep being a or for you to keep doing those things that you used to do. Yeah, nice lesson, wrong text. And then at this point, he went off onto a tangent where he claimed to be a prophet of God, and he said that God gives him sermon notes in his dreams. I think this is more of a nightmare. Then he got off on a huge tangent justifying women pastors. I couldn't figure out his point. But the point that I want to make is that he said that Jesus turning water into wine was that relationships sometimes change. Don't use a text in the way it wasn't intended. And Jesus met the man at his felt need, not his real need. You know who got left out of that? Was Jesus. And you became the center of attention. Who is the backseat character in that text? Jesus was in the backseat. You and the listener, you the listener were in the center, which is why this particular man fills auditoriums with people. Why? Because 2 Timothy 4, three, right after saying, preach the word, Paul says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers To suit their own passions. Just so we're clear. The point of Jesus turning water into wine. Was that Jesus was giving a visual demonstration. Of the doctrine of regeneration. That to be in right relationship with God. You must be transformed by the power of God. And the story ends. By saying in John 2.11. This the first of his signs. Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. He is the center of. He is the focus. How do we know, by the way, that Jesus turning water into wine was a visual demonstration of the doctrine of regeneration? What happened in the very next chapter? John chapter 3, he meets Nicodemus at night, and he says, you must be what? Born again. Right there. Now, our Christology must be robust. Peter closes out the body of his sermon with a clear imperative in verse 36 But notice his climactic proclamation. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The climactic part of his sermon is the Lord Jesus Christ. And really this statement is a a grand statement. It is eloquent theology. It is exaltation at the highest level. This is the fact stated so eloquently by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 8 and 9. The being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And in encapsulated form, in shortened form here, Peter gives us four pillars of Christology. Four pillars of Christology He tells us of the deity of Christ. First of all, that he is Lord. So we get the deity of Christ. We get the kingship of Christ, that he is Christ. Greek, that's a Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. Who do you anoint in the Old Testament? You anoint the king. So you have the deity of Christ. You have the kingship of Christ. We also have the salvation given in Christ. The salvation given in Christ, again, his title of Christ, Messiah, not only connotes his kingship, but it, it speaks of his mission to save humanity from their sins. And then, of course, you have the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ is given in his human name, Jesus, simply meaning the Lord is salvation. These four pillars of Christology are all over the Bible. The Bible reminds us of the deity of Christ. The Bible calls Jesus Adonai, Lord. The Bible calls Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible calls Jesus Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Yahweh, the Creator, the Angel of the Lord who receives worship, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Son of the Most High, the Word, the Only Begotten, meaning the One and Only, the I Am, the Way, the Truth, the Life. He is called God. He is called the Author of Life. He is called the Power of God. He is called the Lord God. The Bible reminds us robustly of the deity of Christ. The Bible reminds us robustly of the kingship of Christ. The Bible calls Jesus the Lord of glory, the head of the church, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the almighty, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The Bible reminds us of our salvation given in Christ. The Bible calls Jesus Savior, the founder of salvation, the Lamb of God, the source of eternal salvation, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the redeemer. And certainly, to remind us that God has made a way for humanity to be joined to God, the Bible reminds us of the humanity of Jesus, that he has become like us in all respects except for sin. He is called the offspring of woman, the servant The Nazarene, the son of David, the son of man, the teacher, the firstborn and preeminent one, the carpenter's son, Mary's son, the carpenter, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon with at least two sisters, the last Adam, the high priest, the lawgiver and judge, the advocate, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David and the branch of Jesse. Do you see that the very core central confession of Christianity is that Jesus the Christ is Lord. When somebody says, what is Christianity about? Jesus the Christ is Lord. Peter-like preaching includes a Christology that is robust. Thirteenth element of Peter-like preaching. Peter-like preaching includes a conviction that is deep. A conviction that is deep. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You notice that Peter's not giving emotional inspiration. He's not giving the suggestion to take a moment and ponder these truths that have been given. He doesn't say that. As Steve Lawson has said, the word of God is a sword that pierces. It is not a Q-tip that tickles. Martin Luther said, the word of God is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. There are no dull verses in the Bible. Every word is as sharp as a scalpel and it cuts deeply. In fact, the word here that Luke uses to describe the listeners to Peter's sermon, that they were cut to the heart, it doesn't mean to be cut on the surface. It means to be stabbed. It means to be run through. It means to be completely impaled, gouged. The same word has the idea of silencing the listener, of stunning the listener. It can even mean to be greatly troubled, to be acutely distressed. And listen, I I say this to myself and to every one of you. If it has been a long, long time since the word of God has stabbed you, has gouged you, has pierced you, has silenced you, has stunned you, what have you done to scab over your own heart? If you haven't learned and grown and even changed in your understanding of the truth, what are you doing to prevent that? Now, of course, on the positive side, this cutting and this piercing is also the mechanism by which our hearts are thrilled with the truth of God and our minds are stimulated with the ecstasy of knowing God better. And you remember what the men on the road to Emmaus said? When Jesus preached to the men on the road to Emmaus, Luke twenty-four thirty-two? they said to each other, did not our hearts, what, burn within us? as he talked to us on the road while he opened to us, what? The scriptures. It's this sense that the preached word of God was reaching into their hearts and setting them on fire. Peter-like preaching includes a conviction that is deep. There's a 14th element of Peter-like preaching that includes a call that is churchward. A call that is churchward. I looked it up. Churchward is a real word. It means directed toward the church. It includes a call that is churchward. In response to the question, "Brothers, what shall we do?" Peter answered, verse thirty-eight. Then Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." Now, while their baptism certainly is not a means of salvation, it was immediately though how Peter urged these new believers to identify themselves with Christ in public baptism and to identify themselves with one another in an organized and an accountable fashion. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do so you notice something immediately? Somebody was counting heads. Somebody was keeping a list. And what did these on the list start doing? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, they ministered to one another. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were gathering together every day. Can you imagine going to church every day? Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And the membership roles grew. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think at times our view of the church has gotten so low that we somehow have thought that it's an option to be joined to Christ but not to His body, the church. You know, verse 41 says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How confusing would it be if verse 42 said and they just went away. No, they gathered together. During his 23 years of ministry in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the mid-1700s, the great Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, was rightly very staunch and very firm in his conviction that church membership is only for those who have a credible salvation testimony of conversion to Christ. He also said that one who didn't join the church, by definition, did not have a credible salvation testimony. He guarded the Lord's table very carefully, in that only church members, not the unconverted, were to partake of communion of the Lord's Supper. And in fact, for him, church membership was so important that ultimately it was the issue that cost him his ministry. Most of his church turned on him for this view. You must be converted to be part of the church. Now to us that doesn't sound that doesn't sound all that novel. But in his time it was. In the American Northeast of the 1700s, the problem was that non-Christians wanted to be church members because it was connected to position and prestige in the community. We have the opposite problem today. Those who want to claim Christ but not be part of the church. But what did Peter do? He aimed the believer's churchward. That if you're a Christian, you're called to the church Peter-like preaching includes a call that is churchward. The last two elements I want to show you, Peter-like preaching, these are more kind of bonus observations we could make. And so they'll be quick. Fifteenth, Peter-like preaching includes a contour that is rational. A contour that is rational. I want to just point out that Peter's sermon has a rational flow of thought to it. It wasn't just an emotional rambling that was all over the map. Now, I mentioned last time that this is probably a synopsis of his sermon. Verse 40 says, With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. But these are his exact words. He spoke these exact words. But I will tell you this. The fact that you could boil his sermon down to two dozen verses tells us that it was laser beam focused and it was very, very rational. Here's his outline. We don't see it here, but it's very clear. He introduces his sermon by refuting the charge of drunkenness, verses 14 and 15. Verses 16 through 21, the Holy Spirit has come in accordance with prophecy. That's his main point. The Holy Spirit has come in in accordance with prophecy. Why? He gives three answers. Answer number 1, 22 and 23, the miracles and death of Christ. Answer number 2, verses 24 through 32, the resurrection of Christ. And answer number 3, verses 33 through 35, the ascension of Christ. And his conclusion is, you have crucified the one that God has made Lord in Christ. And you better come to him. Very organized. There is a contour. There is something that makes sense. One more element of Peter-like preaching Peter-like preaching includes a core that is Trinitarian. A core that is Trinitarian. A very simple glance through of Peter's sermon shows a saturation of the ministries of God the Father, the one who sent the Son, God the Son, the one who was crucified, and God the Spirit, the one who is now empowering the new church of Jesus Christ. So Peter-like preaching should make certain that our diet of preaching has adequate helpings of God the Father, certainly God the Son and God the Spirit. It's not hard to do because you simply preach the text of Scripture and the Trinity is everywhere. So we simply say what the text says and we'll be safe on that ground. Well, we've gone through 16 elements of Peter-like preaching. I hope it's useful to you to know what to look for. Last time I gave you three warnings to consider. The first warning was no engagement. To be careful that you don't begin to lose track of your own mental engagement. There's less and less actual listening and maybe riding the coattails of previous times that you were in in a good place of listening to sermons. Another warning he gave is no conviction. That you should be careful that there's no conviction, that the, the pricking of the Spirit, the guiding of the heart, that this becomes now replaced by a numb hearing of more and more and more knowledge. Knowledge doesn't help you if you don't get it inserted into your heart. It's like leaving the bottle of vitamins on the table and saying, I'm so glad I have these vitamins here. You got to take them. No engagement, no conviction. The third warning we gave last time was no action. No action. I I love the, the newer believers. I love those who are hearing the exposited word of God really for the first time in their lives because they're eager to do what the word of God says. But over the course of years... You could go from taking notes. These are the three things Pastor Steve said to do this week, and I'm going to do them. You can go from that to, well, that's interesting. The thought of proactively doing something differently maybe has left a long ago. And yes, the sermon is appreciated. The sermon is enjoyed. But the follow through of putting in a new system or a new practice in your life, that's a distant memory. I've done that already. Let me add two more warnings to no engagement, no conviction, and no action. Two more warnings. No appetite. No appetite. What do we mean here? We could call no appetite the diminished perception that you need to hear preaching continually. That diminished perception. In my time at Grace Bible Church, and it just occurred to me this morning, this is the eighth anniversary of my coming here, so welcome to the four of you that showed up today. I've preached to you, though, in the vicinity of 800 times since I've been here. And I've been here long enough now to see two trajectories. Trajectory number one, I've seen the mildly interested who develop a serious hunger for the word and are more and more faithful. Some starting to come to Sunday evening service and some of you are still asking me, when are we going to do a Wednesday evening service? I want a third sermon this week. That's one trajectory and I praise the Lord for it. But I've been here long enough to see a second trajectory. The hungry who used to be all in and then slowly losing their appetite over time until they finally lose their appetite so much that they would, be prefer, they would prefer to be fed something lighter, something easier to digest. I've actually received an email that said, you preach too much of the Bible, I can't take it. Beware of no appetite. One more warning, beware of no goals. No goals. This is the first Sunday of the new year, This is where we set some goals. One of the dangers in the Bible church is perhaps the sense that you've paid your dues. That you went through that period a few years ago where you were just all in. You were listening to everything. You went through BTI. You were listening to the word of God. Every chance you had, you were voraciously eating the word of God. Ah, Maybe now it's time to just coast a little bit. But you blink and it's been five years since you've set any goals for yourself spiritually. To learn, to grow. How am I going to understand this better how am i going to understand my god better Could i encourage you to get back to that Could i encourage you to set goals to meet goals to learn on purpose here's our heart it's very simple could have saved a lot of time just read you this verse first peter 2 verse 2 like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. We are the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And we are only that foundation as we are committed to the word of God. That's the only way we're that foundation. And so my hope and my prayer for all of you is that 2021 would be a year in which we fulfill that mandate, that we will be a pillar and foundation of the truth. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God. You are so faithful to give us this infinite storehouse of knowledge, this infinite storehouse of how you might um, bless us with the knowledge of yourself. We think of Psalm 16 that says that at your right hand are treasures, are delights forevermore. We will never cease learning of you, never cease praising you, Lord, I pray for this year, for our local church, I pray that we would be a pillar and and foundation of the truth. I pray that by virtue of our aggressive listening to and applying the sermons that are presented, by virtue of our own Bible reading, by virtue of our own study, that we would seek after you more voraciously than ever before, that we would have an endless hunger to know you, to know your word, We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we also lift up, once again, those who are ill, those who are walking through various diseases right now, Lord. We pray your encouragement upon them. We pray that you would bring us all back together very soon. I thank you and praise you for those who are able to be here. I thank you and praise you for those who are are faithfully having to be at home and yet eager to be among us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.